I want to talk about the worship movement today. Um, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, I'm really just referring to the worship culture of the church in um, America, in the world. Um, obviously, where we're at in America, in the West, even, um, you know, worship has, um, worship, the worship culture has really been dictated by what's coming out um, of the of the West, you know, I mean, you can go to Asia and and the Middle East and um, you know anywhere uh, and you know South America even, and you hear how um, America has influenced the worship movement, the worship culture, the songs we sing, um, the way we do them, uh, and so it, it is important. And worship culture as a whole is obviously important because. As the worship of the church goes, so goes the church. And I will even say that as the priesthood goes, so goes the church. And the state of the church and the prophetic revelation that we walk in and move in is dictated largely by the church. If you're familiar with 1 Samuel, you'll be familiar with the idea of you know, when there is no word of the Lord in the land, when there is no word of God in a place, um, it's always tied back to worship and the focus of our worship. And I'm going to say this phrase probably a few times, but the focus of our worship as the body of Christ, the focus of our worship will determine the efficacy of our impact. So how effective we are at transforming culture, at making disciples, at building the kingdom will all be tied back to that which we worship. Because that which we worship and the focus of that, the concentration of our, of our worship in a sense, you know, um, what we're worshiping. Um, because I believe we're in a, in a time right now where the worship culture, large in part, is, um, is wayward. And I, I want to teach on this, that the worship movement has become like Esau. The worship movement has become like Esau. I, I posted something uh, a few days ago, and um, I posted this, and many people were going, man, this is like a 95 thesis sort of statement about the current um, state of the worship movement. I do think it's incredibly important. I do think that this isn't just a subculture of the church. The church is called out to worship. So you understand that, you know, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and inquires of letting the Israelites go, the entire creed of the church's deliverance from bondage to Egypt, which is a spiritual analogy of people's bondage to Satan, to the kingdom of darkness. The entire thing and creed goes like this. Let my people go. Why? So that we may go and worship our God. Much of our deliverance is that we might exclaim and declare uh, the excellencies of God. Much of our deliverance, much of our salvation is that we might be a new race of people that actually, a new creation that declares the praises and, and reveals the manifold wisdom of who Christ is to the earth, to principalities and powers. And so our worship, the focus of our worship will be the efficacy of our impact. And when our worship becomes wayward and when we have given sway to idols and our worship is not pure in its focus, that is when we find that though 
we might make lots of money, we might have lots of fame, lots of influence, and, and, and we, we pad our own bank accounts from our worship industry, we leave the church in disarray. We leave the, the church spiritually bankrupt. And I'm just going to read from this phrase. I was praying, and the Lord has been developing these thoughts in me. But I, I, I want to just, um, I want to jump in with this statement. I'm going to read this out. And then we're going to jump in and see how the priesthood, who are the carriers and, and the shapers of the culture of worship, how that is tied to the state of our nation, tied to the state of, of the church culture. And, and it's so important. They're all linked. They're all so vitally linked. We cannot separate the idea of worship somehow being the subculture of the church. Listen, you don't even need to have scriptural revelation to understand that as worship in the church goes, the worship culture of the church goes, so goes the entire church. This is clear. Not only that in a spiritual sense in the church, guys, but also in a sense of even in the world itself, how music and and art leads us so the culture will go. Um, I mean, even think about this. It's, it's been said that, um, you know, I don't care who makes your laws. I don't care who makes the laws of the land or of a nation. Show me who writes your songs, and I'll show you who shapes your culture. And I believe, you, you can see this. Look, music, art, sound, songs, these things, these creative outlets that we have, they dictate culture. They shape culture. You know, I mean, it's not easy um, to it's not easy to to shift these things just through preaching always. It's not easy to shift these things just through, you know, legislation in the world. Culture is shifted and shaped by art, by songs. When a song says something, it, it, it influences the culture. I'm always reminded of a story, you know, years and years ago when the song came out. Uh, I kissed a girl and I liked it. This was a song by Katy Perry way back. And I remember Danielle and, and I, my wife and I, were teaching at a school, um, a private school, and we were teaching music. And I remember we had a young girl, she was probably nine years old, came in, and she was singing this song. You know, I kissed a girl and I liked it. That's the, the, the way the song goes. Catchy song, you know, a huge artist. That song can seemingly be brushed off as just, well, whatever. It's just an expression of the culture we live in. And that's true. But this was a song that was actually sowing the seeds of thought into a young girl about what's normal, about what is what is normal, what's accepted. And because it comes in song form, we receive it so much easier. We receive it so much quicker than we would if someone were just telling us. You know, I, I always say this, that the doors of the heart actually open wide to music and receive whatever uh, words and thoughts and principles are coming through the music. Um, they ride right in. Music is the vehicle oftentimes for thought, for culture, for principles. And whatever principles the music is carrying drive right into our heart and thus affect the culture of our lives and ultimately the culture um, of our society. And so with all that being said, I want to just declare this. I believe this is something God is speaking. I believe 
it is necessary to say these things. And um, it might be a bit abrasive at first, but I I want you to follow with me. The worship movement, as we now know it, has become Esau. If you're not familiar with Esau, uh, remember that, you know, Esau and Jacob were two brothers. And um, Esau comes to Jacob and actually gives up his inheritance, that is, the thing promised to him, the blessing promised to him, the resource promised to him as the firstborn, um, he actually gives up his inheritance for a bowl of stew because of his, his need for temporary satisfaction. He gave up his eternal inheritance. The long-term blessing was given up so that he could have a short-term, temporary, um, you know, joy experience. Uh, 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 something met, and oftentimes in the flesh, right? So he gave up uh, 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 eternal inheritance so that he could have a temporary satisfaction. So the worship movement, I believe, has become Esau. And this is why we've traded our inheritance to carry the eternal face of God as the priesthood for a temporary bowl of soup. Our bowl of stew was money, fame, influence, and hit songs. We're now left with the reality that our worship culture has become a money-driven industry while making the church spiritually bankrupt. And and I want you to understand, make no mistake about this. As the worship culture goes, so goes the entire church. Ask Israel about it. Here's the the bottom line, guys. Look, more than likely, some of your favorite worship music got into your ears because someone paid a lot of money to get it there. I know this is a sad truth, and and you need to understand, like, from my story, from my perspective, I am not coming from a place of bitterness. I'm coming from a place of jealousy. I've seen the industry. I mean, we've even lived in Nashville. We saw firsthand a lot of the Christian music industry, and it is just that. If you don't know the history, the Jesus People movement of the late 60s and throughout the 70s and really even into the 80s, the Jesus People movement brought a whole new wave of fresh sound. Certain things that before would have been uh, considered, you know, uh, completely wild and crazy became normal. Uh, For instance, drums, electric guitars in church, rock music in general. Uh, There was a lot of hippies and countercultural people being saved by Jesus, brought into the kingdom of God, and they They're simply doing the music that they knew before, and they're praising God with it. They're just taking a sound that was unfamiliar before and praising God with it. And so we saw a whole new fresh wave of sound, and, you know, consequently, we found that in the 80s, in the 90s, there was a whole fresh wave of new worship. We had Maranatha, Integrity Music. We had Hillsong and this whole new wave of worship. Uh, Calvary Chapel, you could even uh, note, the Vineyard Worship Explosion. There was a fresh wave of worship. And like every time in church history and even before, when a new sound is released, a whole new level of glory came with it. But what happened was, what was a movement actually became industry because as soon as um, what was pure becomes marketable and we can make money off of it, what was a fresh movement that actually 
brought the kingdom of God forth and, in, and brought it into a place of increase becomes industry. Once it's for sale, we lose our power. Once something is for sale, once anything in the kingdom becomes uh, about monetary gain, we lose our power. I mean, this is not hard to see. Look, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that you know, even preachers commodify revelation as money. I mean, we see it today on social media. There's a pressure to put out content, put out revelation, put out, and we use our precious biblical revelation and the words of God that he gives us as tools to commodify monetary gain. The same thing has happened with worship. We've come to a place where worship, and it's been this way for many years, worship and, and Christian music, as it were, has become a way to uh, to, to make monetary financial gain. And what's happened through that is um, we've actually padded our pocketbooks, but we've become spiritually bankrupt in the process. And so I just want to uh, uh, go into this a little bit deeper. Understand this, that, that uh, we're going to go into Matthew um, Five, or sorry, Matthew 4, and we're going to talk about that the enemy is after our worship. He said, if you'll bow down to Jesus, the enemy said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these things. All this I will give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. If our worship is, is for sale, if our worship is for sale, and the point of it is that we gain something from it on the other side, whether that be fame, whether that be influence, whether that be you know a platform or money or recognition, Anytime our worship to God becomes for sale, we're playing, we're playing games with the devil. We're actually playing, we're, we're, we're bartering with the devil, and we're trading something that could have brought us um, kingdom advancement for our own personal gain. Essentially, we're like Judas. We're using our intimacy with God. What should be used for intimacy, worship means to bow down and kiss to bow down and kiss. It's an intimate exchange of our love, typically through song, through art. And what happens is we become like Judas. We actually identify the Lord through our intimacy in order to ultimately betray him for our own personal gain. Some of us knowingly, some of us unknowingly. When Judas kisses Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he kisses him to identify him before the others that would take him in, and he does so for his own monetary gain. I'm telling you, this is a wake-up call for the church, for the worship culture, for worship leaders, artists, creatives, worshipers, period. I'm telling you, this is a moment. If We must recognize what's happening right now. I, I, I don't want to go so deep into this that... Um, it feels as if I'm pointing the finger at the worship, big worship movements themselves. It's always easier to pick on the people who are, you know, making the gain. I, I want to point the finger, though, more at the, a worship or a, rather a church culture that allows that to even exist in the first place. And so you, you understand that, listen, if our worship is for sale, if it's for any other purpose than to build a habitation of the Lord's presence, to give Him glory, to show our love to Him, we're, we're in grave error. 
And I, I know I had a lot of people once I posted this, they said, man, this is like a 95 thesis to the, the worship culture and the corruption that's going on. You know, I even mentioned to you certain things that might be a bit jarring, like, hey, listen, your favorite worship artist, I'm not saying they're good or bad or the other. This is no indictment on them. I am not coming against anyone personally. I am saying this, that your favorite worship artist, someone somewhere paid a lot of money so that you would hear that worship song. A lot of people think, you know, that, well, God breathed on that worship movement. God must have elevated that worship, you know, collective or that, that worship song. They think that the most anointed music raises to the top. I'm, I'm here to tell you that that is not true. In fact, there's a lot of incredible, pure worship stuff that, that you'll never hear of because it doesn't have the money machine and the industry machine and formulas behind it so that you actually hear it. I don't know if you know this, but you know when a worship artist actually releases new music today, the labels and money, ultimately, the industry... All driven by money, by the way. It's all about money. I, I know this firsthand. Listen, when money gets involved, when industry gets involved, what happens is they're buying out the top playlists. So, you know, take Spotify, for instance. When you listen to the new hot worship, the top 40, isn't it interesting to you that only, you know, three, maybe four church Churches or worship movements, collectives are writing 95% of the church's songs that we sing. Does something not seem a little off to you? And, and, and it is off. And the reason it's off is because there's big money paid so that those songs actually become the songs that the church sings. It's not just because they're the best. Even though a lot of the artists and the, and the worshipers and, and songs, they are some of them are really great. They're, they are incredible. But the point I'm trying to make here is this. The point is that they're not that way because God alone has breathed on it. We think, oh, my gosh. This is the newest, freshest, coolest worship thing happening. But unfortunately, a lot of times there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars behind the reason why they are the biggest thing. And our church culture is to blame for this. And I want to I wanna just go in on this. Listen, <laughs> this is not pointing the finger at the big worship movements of our day. The fault lies with a church culture that insists on a king, a Christian celebrity, to go lead us. We find ourselves no different from wayward Israel, who demanded a king lead them instead of God. God gave us the very thing that would ultimately reveal our spiritual adultery. Listen, the time before Israel had its first king, um, they were crying out for a king like the pagan nations. They actually took their cues from the world as to how they wanted to be led. And the Christian music industry has done no different. And we've been doing it for the last 30 years. We see what's popular in the world. We emulate that. We copy it. And then we do that. How do we somehow think that we're going to get spiritual results using carnal ways. There is no way that works. It doesn't work that way. But Israel was much the same way. 
See, before King Saul, the first king of Israel, came about, they cried out to God for a king to lead them. And the Bible says that they cried out for that. And so God actually speaks to Samuel the prophet and says, the people have cried out for a king to lead them instead of me. And it grieved the heart of God. It grieved the heart of Samuel, the prophet as well. But God said, give them what they want. Ultimately, God sees beginning to end. He sees the full picture. He sees the whole book. And so he gave them a king to ultimately reveal their wayward, spiritually adulterous hearts. And I believe this. We are the same. We have asked to be just like the world. We want to be led by celebrities, by celebrity culture. So we put Christian celebrities on pedestals. We, we actually create them. Just like Israel, we create our own idols and then we worship them. We sing their songs. We listen to their words. We are led about by them. And ultimately, here's the deal. We've allowed that mindset to prosper. And any time Israel went wayward, when they went off into spiritual adultery, when they went off into idol worship, typically they didn't know they were in idol worship until a prophet stepped onto the scene and actually said, this is what's happening right now. And most of the times they killed the prophet. They didn't want to hear the prophet. Um, but for the ones that did, he would deliver them from their adultery and they would return to the Lord their God. Listen, I said earlier, you know, make no mistake, as the worship culture goes, so goes the, the, the people of God. Ask Israel about it. The, the, the power that Israel had to be an influence in the nation, to be who they were called to be, which was actually a priestly people who would lead the rest of the world, who would represent God to the world, but also host the presence of God that other nations might come and see the Lord for themselves. Anytime they were doing those things, and their worship was pure, God would bless them. Look at, look at David's tabernacle, the ultimate, you know, priestly thing that, that, that we have to look at, the ultimate priestly model, which was actually, I'm not going to go into this, but it was a Melchizedek model. It was a new covenant model. It was a model that hosted the presence of God, and Israel had their most blessed time than ever before or since during that time. In fact, Solomon reaped the blessing of David's tabernacle and a restored priesthood, a pure priesthood, by riches, enemies being defeated. And ultimately, the nations came to Israel to see what God had done to bless this people. And it all revolved around worship. It all revolved around the priesthood because when Solomon ultimately, through his many wives, his, his natural adultery, if you will, produced the spiritual adultery by the end of Solomon's life, there were again idols up on the hills that they were burning incense to only two to three generations after Solomon in the greatest high watermark of Israel's spiritual and natural history. Only two to three generations after idol worship snuck its way back in. Um, there was complete idolatry and, you know, there was horrible, horrific things happening in the very temple of God. And so as worship culture goes, so goes the people of God. So goes the church. And the truth of the matter is this, that only now can the priesthood save us. Only can the priesthood save us. There's a pure priestly people. And I believe more than only more than not only calling out what's wrong, we must we must put forth a model and an example of how to do this right. And I believe it's going to come from unknowns. It's going to come from people 
you know, that are unknown, that have no following, and they have no industry behind them. They have no label behind them, but they carry the power of God. They're like Davids on the hillside that people have forgotten about. Even their own father, David's father, Jesse, had forgotten to even bring him forth when Samuel came to anoint the next king. And David had had a heart after God. He was on the backside of, of, of the shepherd field singing songs to God, singing the pureness of worship found in the secret place and because of that David had an anointing that got him into the chamber of the current king and they said if you need demons to actually leave and you actually want to see stuff happen you've got to bring this kid David in because when he plays when he worships demons leave the room and heaven comes breaking in listen I'm telling you God is about to embarrass the worship movement as we know it. Because while we've been padding our bank accounts and left the church in spiritual bankruptcy, I'm telling you, some young person is going to step onto the scene with no following, no hit songs, and a sound unlike that which we've ever heard. But when they worship, demons will flee. People will be healed. Angels will show up onto the scene. And the kingdom of Christ will go forward in ways we didn't even think were possible because we've been so used to living at a level so far below what was actually our inheritance since we traded it for the temporary the temporary pleasures of fame and money and notoriety and platform and influence and followers on social media we thought that was what would fulfill us and when we finally realized it would never fulfill us and that we're spiritually bankrupt only the young Davids who show us there is an actual better way. They, they, only they can show us just how lacking we are, how blind, naked, and poor we really are. Only someone that's walking in the pure priestly ministry can actually take us to the place that we need to go. And I want to hit this really quickly. Um, in the days when Israel as a people of God and as a nation, was spiritually bankrupt. In other words, they had no word of God. Remember, Jesus said that man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, uh, what makes us rich, what makes us full, what makes us alive is not natural things alone. It's the Word of God. And so the Bible records in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it says this, that in those days in Israel, the Word of the Lord was rare, and there was no widespread revelation. In other words, people were not hearing from God. God's Word was not prevalent, and there was no prophetic direction. And the Bible's clear where there is no prophetic vision, where there's no direction or prophetic vision for where we're going, there's no blueprint, then we perish. Without vision, people perish. So when we don't have that, we ultimately are dead where we stand. And it says this, that it's an interesting part in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Right before it talks about the state of the nation, it says this, The boy Samuel ministered to the Lord. The boy Samuel, some young boy figured something out. 
that his secret place ministry and worship to the Lord. He was a priest. He had a, the Bible even says he has a small ephod that fit a child, was befitting of a child that his mother had made him. Samuel was priesting before the Lord. The priesthood was coming about from the secret place and it was about to change everything because just only seven chapters after we read there was no widespread revelation, we all of a sudden see there are prophetic musicians that are invading the enemy's camp. The hill of God that was made for worship in 1 Samuel 10, there's these prophetic musicians playing and prophesying. I'm telling you, listen, one person gets breakthrough, it makes a way for many to get breakthrough and come after them. And that's what happened in the case of Samuel. But before that, we read this in 1 Samuel 2. You can read the story of the wayward priesthood. See, we don't get to 1 Samuel 3 of there being no widespread revelation and no word of God. They're not spiritually dead in the nation for no reason. No, the reason was it was directly linked to the wicked and wayward priesthood. And so the Bible talks about it. You have a father, a priestly father in Eli that doesn't hold priestly sons accountable. You're like, Chris, where... How, how did we get to this point in the worship movement, in the worship culture of America? We got to this point because somewhere along the line, there was no priestly fathers, worship fathers or mothers to look at the sons and daughters coming up and say, this is wrong. There's no family. There's no true fathering. And because there's no fathering and mothering in the worship movement, we ultimately have a bunch of orphans that are fighting each other for bread. We're fighting each other for influence. And that is what happens to orphans. Orphans fight because they believe that um, there's not a place for them. The orphan mentality you know, that hasn't been fathered or doesn't know the father's heart says there's only so much to go around. So I have to fight for what's mine. And I think that's a really big key that we find in 1 Samuel 2 that predicates um, a nation, a culture that does ha doesn't have prophetic direction, doesn't have the word of the Lord, is that there was no fathering. And because of that, we have orphans who feel they have to fight for what's theirs. And truthfully, listen, the, the, the worship movement might be, unfortunately, one of the most competitive places where it shouldn't be. Um, now, there are a lot of people that have camaraderie, but a lot of it's sneaky. You know, um, there's a lot of great people. It, this is not to paint the picture um, that it's all dark and bleak. There's a lot of amazing people out there, and I believe God is raising up worship fathers. I myself uh, am one, and I've learned more to be a worship father uh, a lot of times by learning what not to do, you know, by, by learning that, um, by being open-handed, by giving it all away, by preferring someone above myself. And honestly, guys, listen, you know, when, when we have orphan mentality in the worship movement, it's, it's, it's a sad thing. It's sad because we should be the opposite, right? You know, it, it, there is a lot of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's I'll post about your thing, you post about mine. And especially if there's money involved, well, then it's an even easier thing because anytime money is involved, well, you know, I've seen firsthand over and over and over again, relational uh, equity uh, counts for for little sometimes when money is on the table, when money is involved. And so... 
I think we're coming into a place where God is raising up worship mother and fathers who don't care about their own platforms. They're, they're literally, they've been given influence, they understand, not for their own gain, but for the gain of others. They have a John the Baptist mentality. I'm making a way for those who will come after me. My platform is actually to be given away. Everything I've been given is ultimately to give away to those who are coming after me. That is the heart of the Father. And so we see with this, this wayward priesthood, it starts with fathers who really aren't fathering in Eli, but we see that the wicked sons of Eli were really doing the work. They were the ones doing the work of the priesthood, and their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And what happens when you when you read about them is they're doing a lot of evil things. We're not going to go too much into um, you know who they were and what they were doing in this teaching, but you can read that they're they're you know there's there's the same things that are present today. It comes down to money. It comes down to having um, a place, a title of influence. It comes down to having influence so they can have what they want. Obviously, there was um, there was promiscuity and, and, and sexual idolatry happening as well, but they had defamed and almost brought down the very righteousness and honor of the priestly um, role because of their behavior. They made people look at worship with disdain because they themselves had so abused the, the title and the place of the priestly ministry. And because of their their idolatry because they had used the priesthood for their own gain, okay, because they'd use worship for their own gain, it it released this ripple effect of the prophetic was nowhere to be seen. And this is the truth because here's the thing. Listen, remember, there's many examples through Scripture. One that I'll, I'll bring up is remember that priestly ministry, Worship actually makes way for the prophetic, for the word of the Lord to come. And without the word of the Lord, we have nothing. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I say again. So think about when the servants of the king come to the prophet Elisha and they say, we need a word. And Elisha says, bring me an anointed musician to play before me that I might prophesy to you the word of the Lord. There is an intrinsic... Uh, tethering, if you will, between worship, um, anointed music even, um, and anointed sound that, that actually opens up. Worship is the landing pad of the presence of God. In God's throne room, there is day and night, night and day, perpetual worship. There's songs, there's music. It's the sound of worship going forth. And so when the earth does what and it agrees with what's happening in heaven. That's why we see the manifest presence of God break in. When we worship, we see the word of the Lord come forth. So there is a tie between the purity of the priesthood and how much prophetic direction and revelation we're actually living in in the church. And when the the purity of the priesthood is compromised, it sends that whole ripple effect throughout the entire church culture. Um, remember this, that when, when the devil asked all the questions to, to Jesus and the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, the questions built upon one another, but the final thing that the enemy was really after was he was after worship. He was after 
He wanted the very thing that he, he wasn't deserving of. He wanted worship, and he tells the Son of God himself, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you the thing that's in your heart. And the thing he was going to give Jesus, he actually could have given him, number one. And number two, it was the very thing that Jesus desired. So the very desire, remember Psalm 2, ask of me. The Father speaking to the Son, ask of me. The Trinity is a conversation. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. I will give you the nations. So Jesus sees Satan offering him a shortcut to getting the very thing that he, his, his promise was, that the nations would become the kingdoms of this, this earth, will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. This is all throughout Scripture. It, Jesus had the nations in his heart that they would come and worship Yahweh. But here's the deal. Satan offers the shortcut by way of selling out your worship. And so when we sell out our worship to get the hit song, when we sell out our worship so that we can have, uh, uh, and basically, look, it's not just for worship leaders either in the worship movement. It's for every worshiper that sells out their sound, their song that God put in them so that they can be more palatable, they can reach more people. I mean, I have set in rights they call rights, where we're writing worship songs. And the whole idea is what works, what's popular now, you know, what can make the most money. Listen, worship labels, they've come knocking at our door many times. And the deal is they say, we love what you have, but can you put it inside of a box that fits us? Because we're not going to ultimately hitch our wagon to anything that's not going to make us money. And usually when something fresh comes along, the, the, the piranhas are right there, man. The, the wolves and jackals are right there. As soon as something fresh and pure steps onto the scene, it's not long before they come and say, in the name of, you know, in the name of Christianity, in the name of the kingdom, they come and they really wolves in sheep's clothing. We want to take this fresh sound and blast it out to everybody. We want more people to hear it. Although, doesn't it go in direct contrast oftentimes to how Jesus lived that it seemed like the more Jesus' fame grew, the more he would tell them, don't tell people about me. Don't tell people about me. He would, as, as soon as the crowds and the multitudes grew, Jesus said, you know, he would retreat to the wilderness again, to the, to the mountain. He would retreat to the secret place again. And we have to understand that there are times God exalts people, sounds, music, exalts songs, exalts, you know, all these things. But it's never to give a person fame that they can glory and boast in and hold on to their place at the top of the mountain. It's so that they can ultimately give it away. And the truth is, if we're ever not willing to give something away that God has given us, if we're married to that thing, we're more in love with the fame, influence, money, and title that he's given us than we are with his kingdom being advanced we're in error we've created an idol and 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 what's happened now is the church has found itself in that same place we found ourselves in this place of you know we have created the very idols that we worship in the worship movement and there is so much more available to us there's so much more I want you to think of a, a scripture that this I, I speak this so much. It's found in Luke 4. Jesus said it was fulfilled, but it's actually Isaiah 61 that, that I want you to recognize. These are This is part of our inheritance, and it's part of what we aren't seeing ourselves walk in the power of because 
we've had worship that's for sale. Our worship has been for sale. Think of this. It says in Isaiah 61, it says this, verse 4, They will rebuild the old ruins. They'll raise up former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And who are these people that rebuild cities? Who are the people that restore desolations of many generations? And, 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 repair cities and make places where the presence of God is seen and known. Who are these people? And verse 6 answers. It says, they shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall call them the ministers of God. Listen, the truth is the priesthood is the key to repairing cities. The ones who host God's presence will ultimately be the ones who restore broken cities. I'm sitting in a bar on Bourbon Street right now. And all around there is darkness. But I'm telling you, the ones who do Acts 13, who minister to the Lord and to His presence, they will be the ones that transform cities. They'll be the ones to see the nets of, 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 of many uh, fish, many harvests, uh, many souls come into the kingdom of God. We're going to be the ones that, that see this come forth because our priestly sound is not for sale. And a part of this in a very practical way in my life has been this. You know, when labels have come to us and said, hey, you, we love what you're doing. We just, we want you to maybe make corporate songs. Make it more corporate. Make it more easy for the congregation to sing. Any time, and some of those things aren't always bad, but any time that we, you know, have to make something a certain way to ultimately appease more people, I think we're missing out. I don't think the Apostle Paul's letters were um, elevated to the place of Scripture because he was just trying to appeal to everyone. He was writing specific letters to specific churches, and I think we need to treat worship that way. We need to write indigenous songs, indigenous sounds that carry the heart and DNA of the church culture of our cities, that sing songs over our cities and our nations that, that are particular because we're not trying to write something for the masses so it can be pop music. Popular means pop means popular. We're not trying to write popular music. We need to be trying to write kingdom music that, that is for a time and a people and a place. And in doing that, I believe God will elevate it to be used. But the purpose is not so we can have industry. The purpose is a priestly people that are releasing a sound of worship that's hosting God's presence and glory in such a way. It transforms everything around it. And we need so desperately right now a true priesthood to rise up. I believe we can be that. I believe that... We must refuse to be for sale. We are not for sale. It might be the long way of the cross. As Jesus had to tell Satan when he said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you the very thing that's in your heart. And Jesus said this, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. My worship is not for sale. My sound is not for sale. I am here to host his presence. I am a priest who carries the ark on my shoulder. And I will carry the very face, presence. Penuel is what it means. Presence means face. I'm going to carry my inheritance. I'm not trading it for temporary pleasure. I'm actually going to carry this face of God into all the earth wherever God sends me. I don't care if it makes me no money, if it gets me no fame, if it gives me no, no platform. I'm going to carry what God's put in me. 
I remember before I was releasing this Jesus in a bar record, it was, it was actually predicated by the whole idea that, you know, we had record labels, Christian record labels talking to us in Nashville, and that was the whole thing. It was, hey, we love your sound, but we want you to be a little more, the truth is, we just want you to be more popular. They didn't say it this way. It was obviously covered in a lot of cute spiritual language, but the truth is, they were saying, we want to take you and put you into our box, and what happens is, I was considering that. Because, man, I've slugged it out under the radar of as a, you know, uh, releasing the sound of, of who God's made me to be. Oftentimes feeling like, man, I don't have the industry help. I haven't had the, you know, the, the, the honestly, the money. <laughs> At times it's been like we've had to be tent makers, you know, like Paul in order to, to do the sound that was in us. But I, I went on later. To, I was so thankful a spiritual father said, you got to release your sound. And I was showing in these songs that sounded like they belong more in a honky-tonk than they did in the church. And he said, you got to release this sound. And it was shortly after Bourbon Street Revival broke out. And this whole fresh sound came out of us. And Jesus in a Bar album was recorded in this very room. And when we were doing it, it was interesting because um, after it was done, I was just kind of listening to our sound next to what's popular in Christian music. And I thought, man, this is so different. Like, maybe I've missed it. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just crazy. And a friend called me and prophesied to me. He said, listen, you're like Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, woe is me. To I don't almost want to preach the message I'm preaching, but I have to if I don't preach it because I would not only be in disobedience, but the word of the Lord is burning in my bones. And I remembered like the sound that comes out of me is so different. It is, but it burns in my bones. It's the natural expression. It is spirit and truth. It's inspired by the spirit. And the truth is the authenticity of who I really am, worshiping God and loving him in that way with that sound. That's what we need. We need people who are not writing for fame or to be known, but they're just naturally, authentically releasing who they are to God and their worship is not for sale. I believe the greatest priestly revival that the church has ever seen is upon us right now. I believe we're in the beginning days where priests, not just worshipers who worship to feel goosebumps, but priestly people who worship to build a habitation that is generational in its sight. It's not looking for momentary, temporary pleasures of, oh man, that was a good worship meeting. No, 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 no. Or, oh man, that's a great song. Let's, let's make a hit song. Let's write something that everyone will like right now. Let's be a priestly people who host presence. And in doing so, I believe we are going to provoke the old corrupt order that we currently see right now in the body of Christ, in the worship movement, the worship culture. We're going to provoke them into the greater things that God has for us in the days ahead. There's more of this to come. There's a lot more to unpack. I want to dig in a lot more to this. And we'll continue to, to do that next week. I just want to pray. Father, I'm asking that you would prick our hearts. You would show us where we've been lacking. You'd reveal in us that the very things that we thought we needed to feel fulfilled in our lives were lies, that, that truly we need a return 
And we need to return to you, to the priestly order. The, the high calling of carrying your face and your glory above all else is what we need. So I pray for the young ones listening to this now that they'll be inspired to host your presence through worship. That they will learn that the greatest privilege, the greatest vocation in the universe is to host the very face of Yahweh, the face of Creator God. In wherever city they're at, in whatever dark place they're at, that they would host it from their secret place all the way to the public square in Jesus' name.